Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65 today. We are in the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. We're on the Thursday, late evening, early morning, kind of bleeding into Good Friday. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested, and this is where we pick up the story. So I'm going to read it through, and then we'll move our way through the text. So they took Jesus to the high priest... And all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy! And the guards took him and beat him. The context, verse 53. They, this is kind of the religious police, armed guard, take Jesus to the high priest, who's identified in the other Gospels as Caiaphas, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, they all come together. This is an informal, likely, preliminary hearing before an official one. It's held somewhere in the middle of the night, and it's clear from the proceedings that the verdict has been kind of pre-established. They're kind of going through the motions, but they're intending to arrive at the conclusion that Jesus deserves death for blasphemy. And then they can hand them over to the Roman authorities. They can hand him over to the Roman authorities with some kind of charge of being a threat to Rome because the Sanhedrin at that time doesn't have the power of uh, public execution, but the Romans do. Why have they arrested Jesus? Why are they attempting to um, kind of move him along this path, this this kangaroo court, to a uh, charge of blasphemy? Why do they want him dead? Well, two major reasons. Number one, Jesus, throughout his ministry and his life, By what he said, by what he did, he seems to be claiming an authority that goes beyond the authority of a regular prophet or a great teacher or a representative. He seems to be claiming an authority that's divine in nature, that's on equal steading with Yahweh. That's why when the high priest hears Jesus' words, he says, you know, what? Why does he talk like this? This is blasphemy. Earlier in the Gospels, when Jesus heals people and he says, 
you know, your sins are forgiven. We read that and say, well, yeah, Jesus can forgive sins. That is not a normal thing for a prophet of God to do. You are not allowed to do that. It's only through the temple ritual system and the high priest, they can declare forgiveness. You don't get to do that because only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus forgives sins and declares that people's sins are forgiven, the charge is this is blasphemy because they know what Jesus is not so subtly insinuating. You can forgive sins only if the sin has been committed against you. So if you've committed a sin against God and Jesus comes along and says, I forgive you, that is a very clear claim to divine authority. Jesus again, uses phrase, start start certain sentences with amen. He is saying, what I'm about to tell you has binding authority. He's even worshiped, much more in the gospels after he's resurrected. But even when the wise men come to him in Matthew chapter two, it says they worship the child and no one rebukes them for that. Jesus has lots of I am statements throughout the gospel where he declares things about himself that very clearly um, distinguishes him from just a pool of prophets. And he claims the name of God in saying, I am, that God gave to Moses. When Moses, when God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush, and Moses says, well, when I go back to these people, who, what entity of, am I supposed to say has, has talked to me, has sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So Jesus seems to be claiming an authority that is divine in nature. And the reason why that is particularly troublesome for the religious leaders is not just the sense of, oh, he has kind of an inflated ego and he's kind of gotten too big for his britches. It's that in claiming to have divine authority, what Jesus is also communicating is that he has authority over the temple and over the temple systems and over the chief priests, and even over the high priest, who would see himself at the top of the religious power pyramid. But Jesus, because of what he's saying and doing, and then specifically, that comes into view during his final week, where he starts pushing back on the religious authorities. So in in Mark 11, you have him going into the temple and turning over the, the, the corrupt practices that had taken over the religious system at that time, And he does it by invoking a verse where he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And again, when he says that, it says the chief priests and the teachers heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Not because he overturned the tables, but but because he, in a sense, declared, why are you doing this to my house? This is my house. Like, uh, no, Jesus, this is the temple This is God's house. Jesus says, correct. This is my house. You've turned it into a den of robbers. So he's pronouncing judgment on the temple and by implication, all the religious leaders who are supposed to be a light to the nations and instead have used their power to accrue wealth and privilege and kind of be in bed with Rome and not speak truth to power and not live faithfully and and lead God's people faithfully. In Mark 12, when he's at the temple and he's teaching He talks about, you know, watch out for the teachers of the law. They walk around in these flowing robes, want to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have these important seats in the synagogues. They they occupy the places of honor at banquets, but they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. 
these men, these men will be punished most severely. Jesus is talking about this during the Passover festival. Hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem standing out publicly, calling out the religious authorities. By what authority is he doing that? And then Mark 13, after Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, wow, look, teacher, look at these massive stones. What, what a magnificent building. And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Like, look around you. Look at this temple. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Again, these are public statements. People are hearing this. And the scuttlebug is going kind of through Jerusalem. Jesus is pronouncing, he's, he's predicting there's going to be some kind of doom on the temple. That uh, religious life as we know it is going to come to an end. And he seems to be a central figure in kind of being the tip of the spear of that agenda. Verse 54, Jesus has been brought before this kind of the priestly class. It says, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So Mark is kind of inserting this little verse to say, yeah, Peter's here. He's, he's setting us up for the big gut punch that we'll get to next week where Peter denies Jesus. And he's just kind of tracking, he's threading this theme of, you know, Peter's still there, he's following, but he's doing it at a distance. He's kind of trying to blend in. And I thought about that, and I just thought, you know, if nothing else, just verse 54 has a great little devotional insight that we all follow Jesus, but one thing that I used to ask when I was doing youth ministry is, how closely are you following Jesus? Because you can follow Jesus in such a way that he's way off in the distance, and and you're kind of not really seeking after him and seeking to be close to him and to allow who he is to rub off on you and to be observing him and learning how to live your life, but, um, but you're still like a Christian, like I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm just not doing so in a way that is so proximal to Jesus in terms of my daily obedience that I kind of stand out. And I thought, you know, following Jesus at a distance, and this is just a good self-diagnostic test, following Jesus at a distance is often marked by two things. You blend in with the crowd, and you're prioritizing personal comfort. So Mark is showing us these two paths, right? Jesus, all of, he's, Jesus is being more faithful into God's mission, what is happening. All of his friends who should be by his side, they fall away, they're scattering. He becomes more and more isolated. And by, even by the end of this passage, begins being uh, emotionally, relationally, verbally, and then physically begins to experience beatings, hardships, what is Peter doing? Peter is now surrounding himself with other people and with the guards and with the crowds. Like, I'm not against Jesus, but I'm like, I'm just kind of going along with stuff and I'm warming myself by the fire. And I just thought that, that, that's a good challenge for me to say, where in my life am I maybe afraid to follow Jesus closely because of maybe the social repercussions? And I'm kind of just like blending in with the crowd and making sure that I'm comfortable and following Jesus at a distance that works for me instead of like, you know, John and Stacy, what we just heard from them saying, hey, following Jesus from me for this, in this area of my life is going to mean not prioritizing my comfort, not blending in with the crowd, sticking my neck out there, risking being vulnerable. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any 
Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony didn't agree. So now we see Jesus getting kind of peppered with false allegations from many different sources. People are misrepresenting Jesus' views. They're putting words in his mouth. You can search the Gospels. Jesus never says, I will destroy this temple. He says, it's going to come tumbling, come tumbling down. And in reference to his own body, he says, if you destroy this temple, then I will rebuild it in three days. But they're kind of twisting the words. Like he pretty much said this. This is what he said. They're amplifying, they're embellishing, they're exaggerating, and they're putting a spin on it that puts Jesus in immediate legal danger. I don't know if you've ever been falsely accused of something, but you don't need to look very far today to see how even one false public allegation can destroy your life in an instant. Our words, the Bible says, hold the power of life and death, often over other people. And that's why the ninth commandment technically isn't don't lie or thou shalt not lie. It's you shall not give false testimony. It's a, it's a, it's a, it has much more to do, although the broader principle is yes, don't lie, but it has much more to do with the particulars of a judicial hearing where if two people say this person did this crime, you could have been executed in Israel. And so the bar for truth-telling is incredibly high. If you are going to testify about the actions or words of another person, you got to be precise. The truth, the whole truth, but nothing but the truth. And as Christians, you know, I pause here to say we need to watch our words very, very carefully. We should be very, very precise with what we say, especially when we're conveying someone else's words, someone else's ideas, someone else's viewpoint. They, basically, they said this, like in a nutshell, this. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it's kind of like this. No. Christians should never embellish or misrepresent the words of other people. We serve a king who faced a damning false testimony against him. And so we should be people who guard the integrity of our witness to the world by being people of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so, in terms of discipleship in everyday life, be precise in your speech and tell the truth, even if it is costly to you. Be precise in your speech and tell the truth even if it's costly, even if telling the truth makes your life more difficult. That is an obligation that you have as a follower of Jesus. Verse 60, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, You are the Messiah. Sorry, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory. Okay, this, 
this part here is sort of the climax. This is the tension point and the climax of this section of Scripture. And it's really, really powerful once you understand all the pieces that are in play and kind of what's going on here. Uh, N.T. Wright explains this very well and very briefly. So here's the context through which we can re-engage these verses and say, oh, wow, oh, yeah, this is like, this is a big deal. This, this is a throwdown happening. You have Caiaphas, who's the high priest. He is clearly unnerved by Jesus' ministry generally, now in the temple courts of the week leading up to this event, pronouncing doom, calling out the religious leaders. Caiaphas, the high priest, is clearly uh, unnerved, not just that Jesus is calling out the priestly class, but he's essentially saying this whole system is going to be destroyed. Because Caiaphas is the high priest, and the temple is his power base. So you have this prophet from Galilee saying this is all coming to an end, yet no. That, that's, that's, not, that's not kosher. So you have this head-to-head here. And N.T. Wright, it says you got to picture it like Jesus kind of facing off with Caiaphas, and the unspoken assumption between them is this place isn't big for the two. This place isn't big enough for the two of us. So, something's going to have to give. Either Jesus' kingdom agenda is going to be validated, vindicated by God, and everything that Jesus predicts about the temple is going to happen, and then Jesus' kingdom movement is going to flourish, explode out into the world, or God is going to validate the priestly system and Caiaphas and all that that represents. And Jesus' kingdom movement is going to be shut down, snuffed out, raised to the ground, and the temple will continue in security perpetually under God's protection and blessing. Okay, so verse 60. The high priest stood up before them and and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. So Jesus doesn't answer directly the accusations that are leveled at him about what he said about the temple. And so N.T. Wright would say, what you have to understand what Caiaphas does is he kind of turns up the heat. He asks another question, which is designed to get Jesus talking. And he asks him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And the reason why he asks this is because at this time, most Jews who did a lot of thinking and reflection about the Messiah and the Messianic text in the Old Testament, they believed that the Messiah, when he was revealed, would have authority over the temple. That it wouldn't be, in a sense, God, temple, Messiah. It would be God, Messiah, temple. And so what Caiaphas is doing by asking Jesus this question is, he's, he's, he's asking Jesus the question, do you think you're in charge here? What's the pecking order? What do you perceive it to be, Jesus? Do you think you're the Messiah? Do you think you're over me? Jesus, look around you. You've been deserted. You're in my home court. I have the power. I have the soldiers. I hold your life in my hand. You really want to push this here? You think you're the Messiah? Jesus says, 
I am. And then he adds this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that is, once we have eyes to see it, that is a throwing down of the gauntlet of the highest order. That sentence kind of kitbashes two significant Old Testament scriptures that were loaded with meaning in the first century. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. In Psalm 110, David says this, The Lord said to my Lord, speaking about the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then verse 5 and 6, The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Rulers, obviously, meaning those who stand in opposition to God's reign. So in Psalm 10, Psalm 10 is about a future king who's referred to as a Lord who will sit at the right hand of God and be equal in power, and God will give this this Lord, this ruler, power to judge the nations and to be in authority over all principalities and powers. Then, so that's where, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One is Psalm 110. Then the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven is a reference to Daniel 7. This is often the way Jewish people debated. You would quote a verse or part of a verse because you would assume your interlocutor would know, oh, he's quoting Psalm 96. And you'd think through the whole psalm and say, hey, what's he saying? So it was a very sophisticated way of proving your point and establishing your perspective. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 says this. This is the vision Daniel has. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now think through the tension in that moment when Caiaphas says, in a sense, do you think you're in charge here? Because you're in my house, Jesus. You think you're the Messiah? Caiaphas, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I am the Messiah, Caiaphas, but I'm actually something more. Your understanding of Messiah is too small. I am the one who, like a Son of Man, titled Lord, I will approach the Ancient of Days on a cloud. I will be led into his presence and sit at the Almighty's right hand. I am the one who will be given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations in every language will worship me. My dominion will last forever and will never be destroyed. I can't say that about this temple, but I can say it about my kingdom. Caiaphas, I am right. 
you are wrong. I am an authority here. You are not. And when I am vindicated, when what I'm saying comes true, you will remember these words. And there's four levels of vindication that happen, at least four. When Jesus is resurrected, that's the first vindication that God the Father says, this was my son, everything that he said was true. The second is the ascension, where Jesus comes on the clouds into the presence of the Almighty and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Third vindication, temple gets destroyed in the early 60s, about 30 years after this exchange. And then the fourth, ultimately, will be when Jesus returns to establish his earthly kingdom forever and to destroy all rulers, powers, and principalities that have stood against him during that time. This claim is not just scandalous. Uh, Caiaphas is right in the sense that it it would be blasphemous if it was anybody other than Jesus saying this. And so the high priest tears his clothes. He is enraged. Why do we need any more witnesses? This, this, this trial is over. We're done. Everyone has heard what this prophet thinks of himself, right? What do you think? They all condemned him worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, began to beat him with their fists, saying prophecy. Oh, such a powerful, um, such a powerful, powerful representative, such a powerful prophet. Let's, let, let, let's see the, the, the scope of his glory and his authority and his power. If we blindfold him and I strike you, does he, does he know which one hit him? Or just a complete mockery and degradation of his office. And the guards took him and beat him. And I think about that when it said that, you know, they began to spit at him and blindfolded him and struck him. And again, I think about last week where we looked at where, you know, Peter goes to cut off the servant's head, likely, but misses, hits the ear. And, and Jesus says to Peter, do you not think I could call a legion of angels and kind of clean this mess up? I could. These people are only alive because I'm letting them live. And again, you kind of have the same thing here, right? Like they're beginning to spit on Jesus, beat him. The restraint that Jesus shows out of love here is just it's amazing. We live in an age that has been called the age of identity. Whether it's people advocating for identity politics or people who self-identify as fill-in-the-blank, we're in a cultural moment where identity and its attenuating considerations are at the forefront. And one of the messages seems to be or at least it seems to be emerging within certain voices within our culture, that there's an insistence that if I self-identify as something, you are beholden to honor that identity and to celebrate the implications of that identity. Leaving behind kind of the current discussions and political ramifications of that and relational ramifications, I just want you to think about this. Jesus of Nazareth is a figure of unparalleled significance in world history. No one has had a more positive, powerful, far-reaching effect 
on humanity. And that's really a claim that even the most ardent secular historian would have to concede to. No one else comes close in terms of the scope and breadth of his influence, whether or not you believe that he was who he said he was or not. And that means that any thoughtful, spiritually sensitive person is going to have to ask the question, who is Jesus? Why is there all this influence there? Is he actually the Messiah? Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? And at that point, lots of people, lots of voices are going to chime in. Yes, for sure. No, totally not. Maybe, well, we have to understand it this way. You have lots of people trying to define who Jesus is. This morning, what I would encourage you to do is to listen very, very carefully to how Jesus self-identifies. The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am. Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And now your grid for what that means has changed. And you understand the full import and significance of what he's saying. And that means that this claim, this self-disclosure of who he is, it drives you to one of three conclusions. You can dismiss him as a lunatic. You can say this guy was an egomaniac. He was crazy complete inflated sense of self. You're going to have to wrestle with why all the influence then? Why all these first-hand accounts? Why was he so popular? You can hate and revile him as a manipulative liar. You can have the, or you can reject him like Caiaphas did. You can hate him and revile him for all kinds of reasons, but at bottom, because you feel like he's either being manipulative or he's doing some kind of uh, malicious power play to try and gain unjust power over other people by claiming an authority that isn't his. Or you can acknowledge him as God and then surrender your entire life now and into the future for him. Those are, those are really only the three logical ways to hear and understand this statement and then move forward. If Jesus' self-disclosed identity is true, that means all of our identities and all of our destinies will only begin to make sense once they're understood in light of his. He's the center that holds it all together. And to accept and embrace Jesus in his fullness is to necessarily be propelled into a very different kind of life. Not just moralism or kind of a soft spirituality, but a thorough reevaluation of your entire life based on who Jesus said he was, and that's called repentance. I look at my life, how I've been organizing it, and saying, well, that was when I didn't think Jesus was who he said he was, and I just had my view of the way things should be. Now with Jesus' self-disclosure, how does all of this change? From how I use my body, how I use my time, how I use my money, how I use my energy, how I, how I use my imagination, what I'm about in the world, how I'm about what I'm doing. You know, you get, you get to an exchange like this between Jesus and Caiaphas, you know, and this would be one of those verses that I would say, you know, this is why casual Christianity doesn't really make sense. Like it, doesn't, it doesn't logically follow from who Jesus said he was and the implications. 
if you've seriously grappled with who Jesus said he was, you can't really have a casual engagement with his kingdom call on your life. Because who he claims to be, it forces you into a place of a fair amount of intensity. You either reject him intensely or you have to embrace him intensely. But what doesn't make sense is to kind of be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That, that's neat. Jesus is neat. Like, I totally, I, I want him on my team sort of thing. It won't make sense to include Jesus kind of tangentially on the, on the perimeter of your life when he says, I am the one who's been given by the Father all authority and glory and sovereign power. Everything is now going to be sent, recentered on me. I'm going to be worshipped. I'm establishing a kingdom that will have no end. And I'm calling a people into that vision right now to walk out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light and freedom, and hope, and love, and redemption. Are you the Messiah, Jesus? Are you the Son of God? I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This morning, may we take Jesus at his word and respond with a lifestyle of worship to the one who has been given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Let's pray. Jesus, in this confrontation with Caiaphas, I, I experienced that confrontation in a sense in my relationship with you and in our relationship with you. That we kind of have a sense of who you are. We'd like to define you in a certain way. We'd like to cordon you off from certain domains of authority in our life. It's kind of embarrassing, God, even after following you for decades now, that I'm still aware of places where I'm hesitant to acknowledge your lordship and to live into it. Or would you forgive me? Would you forgive us for that? Would we see who you are? But the gravity and weight of your glory be such that we don't just give you a thumbs up or a high five. That the response to, of our life isn't just, that's really neat. But that we would present ourselves as living sacrifices for your glory. Teach us, God. Show us. Empower us. Lead us to being a peaceful people that faithfully reflect who you are and your goodness and your greatness and your glory into the world. For your name's sake. Amen.
I'd like to send you off with a benediction, which is a word of blessing. If you'd like prayer for anything, you can just come up to one of these front row chairs over here and someone will be there to pray for you. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you take Jesus at his word. May you respond in a lifestyle of worship to the one who has been given authority and glory and sovereign power. And may you enjoy and revel in the hope and the happiness and the power and the purpose that are open to those whose identities are now grounded in Christ. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.